In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I am your host, Daniel, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Evan. How's it going? On today's show, we will be covering a topic so expansive, so incredible, you won't believe your ears. The political compass. Some of you may be familiar with it, others not, but after this episode, I can almost guarantee you will be an expert on the compass, the spectrum, and all of the ideologies that occupy it. And if you aren't an expert, you aren't paying attention. Yeah, for real. So what are we going to cover on the episode today specifically? Let's go line by line. First, we will talk about the history of the modern political classifications. We'll discuss the two types of political compasses and explain them. We will dive into the four quadrants and then cover the linear spectrum. Then we'll talk about the political factions that we can find on these spectrums and uh, do an in-depth analysis. Then we'll discuss the best and worst political factions. And then we'll ask, where do modern Republicans and Democrats and um, some other parties fall on the scale? What about uh, third parties? Where uh, do we rank on the compasses? We'll give you our test results. You may be surprised by those results. And why and how are these visual aids useful in online political discourse? All right. So first, what is the history of modern uh, political classifications? So the terms left and right, which most people have heard, began with the French Revolution in 1789. A national assembly was formed to take power from King Louis XVI. However, even within the assembly, there were huge disagreements about many topics, including how much power the king should have. Those who believed he should have an absolute veto in the legislative system sat on the right of the assembly president, and those who thought he shouldn't sat on the left. So they physically sat yes. there on left and right, and yep. that was the start of it. That was the start of it. Wow, humble beginnings. Yes. The classifications of left wing and right wing did not really become widespread out of fr outside of France until Bolshevik Russia took them up. Oh, okay, so they had learned about this. Well, they were, as I'll, I'll say in a minute, they were obsessed with the French Revolution. Oh, okay, yeah. do tell. Marxist ideology obsessed over the French Revolution. Marx lived after the revolution. He was in the 1800s. Um, so he, they obsessed over it, seeing it as a confirmation of the historical inevitability of communism. Left and right-wing deviants uh, within the Bolshevik system were labeled thusly for not sticking precisely to the party line, the Communist Party line, which was always changing, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Kind of like uh, the party from 1984. Always Indeed. changing. Indeed. Mm. So American politics occasionally used the left and right identifiers between the world wars, but self-proclaimed leftists at this point meaning ardent socialists and communists, a much larger group then than now, were few and far between. See, before the New Deal, there was a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment in America because of the monopolies, and there were lots of poor people, um, especially the migrants coming in. Yeah, you had what they called them, Hoovervilles and, and things like that, and of course the Great Depression. So I can I can kind of understand that. And with 
with the Bolshevik Revolution in full swing, a lot of revolutions kind of going on at that time, I can see how that sentiment might bleed over. But do you really think that there were more then than there are now? I mean, there are a lot of people who consider themselves democratic socialists. First of all, it's not actually that many people. There's very loud, I think. Percentage-wise, oh. I don't think they're much. But like Eugene Debs ran under the Socialist Party. I think he did pretty well in the 20s and 30s, Okay, even against FDR. Really? Ran yeah. as a socialist? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess the only real person that we can say in recent politics who has done something similar was Bernie, and he didn't really do very hot. I mean, well, he had his, his time in 16, but... Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. We'll cover all that later. <laughs> yeah, we will. Uh, yeah. So the self-proclaimed leftists were few and far between because most of them compromised by supporting FDR's New Deal, which was a step in the radical direction. It wasn't the complete fulfillment. It was kind of a middle way between socialism and the status quo before the Great Depression. I would agree. So these radicals avoided the label of leftists so to not hurt the cause. So they wouldn't say, oh, FDR's New Deal is a bunch of communists running it, which it wasn't, but the communists supported it as a matter of prudence. Ah. Yeah. In the post-World War II climate of the Red Scare, calling oneself a leftist was career suicide. In fact, you would get fired from any government job if you if it came out that you were a communist. Yeah, better red than dead. You know, you see all these— well, it's better uh, dead than red. Or, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah, better. <laughs> in, in Russia, it's better red than dead. But over here, it was better dead than red, yes. And, yeah, you saw those kind of propaganda posters all over, and that was kind of just a slogan. And, uh, yeah, people really, really ran from it like the plague. Yeah. Conservatives around this time in the 50s and 60s began to link the growth of the liberal state, the New Deal, and wartime policy with leftism and communism. The post-war Republican and Democratic parties began to have two centralized belief systems, which aided the widespread adoption of left and right terminology because it's like, oh, Democrats are left, Republicans are right. Whereas before that, um, before the Great Depression and actually a few decades after, the South was a very Democratic section of the country. Yes. Because there were the Southern Democrats and the regular Democrats. And the Southern Democrats, you know, if you know history, they were the ones who were, you know, for slavery because it was the Republicans who abolished slavery. So the Southern Democrats were the secessionists and the ones who wanted states' rights and 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 racism. Yeah, who may have had white hoods and things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But when they kind of consolidated their base to be more like it is today and one centralized party ideology for each of them. So mm-hmm. that that really helped to classify them in two groups. Now today, the left is associated with progressivism and the right is associated with conservatism. We'll talk about the definitions of those terms in a minute because both terms are slippery. It is clear that when the centrist position becomes abandoned and people become radicalized as they are today, the terms left and right become even more distinguishable. And that's, like I said, that's that's what's going on today more and more. Sadly, the past decade, it's been that way. Even in our polarized discourse today, people still use terms like far right and far left as if right and left weren't distinguishable enough. Yeah. It's to delegitimize opponents on the other side who were extra crazy. Because the other side is crazy, but they're not like scary crazy, you know? Yeah, like, oh, you know, they're they're wrong, but we could at least tolerate them and like live with them but like those far right or far left guys yeah. we can't we can't be civilized with them no they're outside the scope of reasonable thought now it's worth noting that even the same political words can morph over time much like the political parties themselves in 1789 to be right meant to be an absolute monarchist 
Center meant to be a liberal, meaning a representative monarchy with explicit rights, so kind of a compromise there. And left meant to be radical, no monarchy, only democracy. So let's take a look at other prominent political labels. First, we'll talk about liberal. The applicable definition of liberalism is a political or social philosophy advocating the freedom of the individual, parliamentary systems of government, nonviolent modification of political, social, or economic institutions to assure unrestricted development in all spheres of human endeavor, and governmental guarantees of individual rights and civil liberties. Doesn't that sound like what Americans would call libertarianism today? I think so. There's some similarities there. This is why some Americans like Dave Rubin, for example, uh, insist on calling themselves classical liberals. They are attempting to bring back the meaning of the term. Nowadays, liberal is a pejorative aimed at Democrats. It is basically synonymous with leftist, which has come to mean progressive. Yeah, you hear a lot of, uh, I guess, the Trump crowd, conservative crowd saying, oh, those liberals, you know, they just want this. It's the liberal agenda. Libtards. Yeah, libtards. Yeah, it's just it's, it has a really negative connotation there. Next, let's talk about conservatives who are kind of the mm, seen as the antithesis, I guess, to the liberals. Uh, it is a slippery term, again, uh, since it is defined as disposed to preserve existing conditions, institutions, etc., or to restore traditional ones and to limit change. But what are you trying to conserve? That's the big question. It depends on the history and the country of origin. How far back are you trying to go? Are you trying to preserve the status quo or bring us back to the 1950s? Maybe the 1450s? <laughs> In modern America, conservative means a Republican who probably holds traditional religious social values and wants lower taxes. That's a pretty good summation right there. And as far as the question of what are they trying to conserve, it is a, that's a very good question because their platform changes. You know, what, what a conservative is has changed over the decades. So are they conserving much? Not really. They're kind of progressing along with the progressives themselves. Just at a slower pace. Yeah. So there are two types of political compasses that can kind of guide us through this maze of political ideologies. So let's break those down for you. There are two types of political compasses that most people are familiar with, the four quadrants and the linear spectrum. So the linear spectrum is the simplest of the two, just one axis. Uh, this type of compass compares the levels of government control between uh, different ideologies, parties, groups, etc., and organizes them from left to right. On the far left, of the spectrum is totalitarianism. Think North Korea, Soviet Russia. In the middle would be the moderates or the centrists who have mixed views on many different political issues. On the far right are anarchists or anarcho-capitalists, uh, libertarians, and somehow Nazis. So that's a point of contention. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute uh, as far as the Nazis go, whose uh, ideal level of government would be uh, uh, much larger than the libertarians. So it's kind of hard to understand why they're lumped together there. Libertarians want little control or no control at all, uh, or at least they want it equal to the same level of government that America enjoyed at the time of the founding. Yeah, I think the linear spectrum is just stupid, because how are you going to group some libertarians with Nazis? Yeah, that, and, that's kind of not, confusing. Uh, Nazis are universally classified as far right, but so are, yes. so are like... <laughs> You know, Jeffersonian libertarians, you know, so yeah, I, I don't understand how you're going to do that classification. Yeah, and, and people will kind of just – I think that's just laziness. People will just throw those terms around without even really thinking about what they're talking about and what those terms describe because to me, 
as I understood it, and this is not how everyone understands it, but I think if you're talking about the linear spectrum, the simplest way to understand that, or at least to apply that term, is to say, you know, who wants the most government, who wants the least? They're on a spectrum. That's how it should be. But people will just throw around, oh, far right, you know, and then they just throw Nazis in there. Nazis wanted huge control over, over government. They were national socialists, and they wanted to control members of their population, and they wanted to, you know, have a uh, ethnostate, basically. So there are a lot of a lot of things going on there that were not free market necessarily, you know. That's not that's not very close to what libertarians would believe in, but yet they're lumped in on the same side, the right, and that doesn't make sense. If only we had a reasonable alternative. Oh, wait, we do. (laughs) Yes, we do. The four quadrants type of compass was devised in 2001. It's 20 years old. When politicalcompass.org was launched, it uses two axes to compare ideologies instead of just one. This is like, it looks like you're back in math class. Okay, it's a four quadrants, uh, just two axes. Yeah, it X just looks like, X a, and y. like a graph. You like a graph, yep. So the vertical axis compares the level of preferred government intervention on social affairs. The Political Compass website refers to these as authoritarianism at the top and libertarian libertarianism as, at the bottom. So people up high want the state to regulate people's lives and promote nationalism, while people far down want the state to be minimally involved in people's social lives. The horizontal axis compares the level of preferred government involvement in economic affairs labeled left and right. Fitting. Yeah. On this axis, leftists want the government to interfere with industry, usually for the sake of workers, and those on the right want the government to not involve itself in the economy, which the left argues is synonymous with siding with big business and owners. Mm-hmm. The four quadrants are color-coded for easier identification. Top left is red, top right is blue, Bottom left is green. Bottom right is purple. And not to confuse uh, the, the discussion here too much, but I have seen people use yellow. For before. the bottom right? Do they, is that for the bottom right? So, like, libertarian is sometimes yellow because that's their color, gold? I don't know. Oh. I, I've seen them do that, and, and it kind of confuses me because, like, if, if you go to the politicalcompass.org, it's purple. The bottom right is purple. So that's what we're going to go with on, on for the rest of this. It's uh, also worth noting here that the Political Compass has become a popular meme format, spawning endless parodies. Some of them are really great. A quick look through the website Know Your Meme, a well-respected source of information with thousands of peer-reviewed entries, and the second most trusted source for knowledge next to Urban Dictionary. The Sons of Antiquity podcast uses both of those sources regularly for the information here. I can promise you that we are bringing you top-notch information, high-quality Source from uh, locally grown and what is it? Minority owned businesses and yes. websites. But this website reveals a variety of noteworthy variations on the compass, such as the Arnold Schwarzenegger version, where his characters from different movies represent the different quadrants, or the version showing which hats each quadrant would wear. And if you want a little little detail on the Arnold one, uh, the 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 top red, which is like the totalitarian one, uh, it's from it's a picture of him dressed as a Russian from the movie Red Heat. Uh, the top right is sort of supposed to be like the neo-Nazi quadrant, and it's uh, him doing a bodybuilding pose where it looks like he's doing the sea Kyle. And um, <laughs> the bottom left is uh, him dressed as a woman from the movie Junior. And then the bottom right is him in a ball pit with uh, kids from Jingle All the Way. So I guess they're just trying to 
the joke was that libertarians are pedophiles or something like that, which is probably only half true. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get into the four quadrants more in depth. Uh, And which famous figures from history could possibly occupy each to give you more of a bearing of what we're talking about. So first, you got the top left or the red quadrant. It's known as the authoritarian left. Philosophies that fall into this category favor increased government size and force in both social and economic affairs, with the intent of using that power to achieve social progress, disrupt existing social orders and hierarchies, and achieve equality of some kind. They are also characterized by their complete and utter failure to do so throughout history. (laughs) In this region, you will find communists, many socialists, Soviets, etc., among others. Individuals include Fidel Castro, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Mao Zedong, and Joseph Stalin. This quadrant was more of a 20th century phenomenon than a current problem, luckily. Yes, luckily. Now, how many states would you say are still in the red in, in 2021? Mm. You got North Korea. North Korea, somewhat Cuba, not as much as it used to. Um, Venezuela supposedly like lower down. Yeah, we'll yeah, probably not quite like extreme top right red. There's like a super lot, strict. There's a lot more Asian and African countries than you think that have that were communist at one point. Yeah, just they fell within the Soviet sphere, mm-hmm. like Laos and Vietnam. Uh, yes, Ca- Cambodia. I'm pretty sure are all still technically run by the Communist Party of those countries. Yes. So there's more than you think, but they're all kind of floundering and, you know, quietly incorporating some market reforms to try to not starve so much. Yeah. <laughs> except, for Nor- except for North Korea. They're the only ones who haven't really given in at all. Yeah, they're really dedicated. But at least those other countries are not, like, within the iron fist of, of the Soviet Union anymore. Well, there is no Soviet Union anymore. That helped. Yeah, that does help. Yeah. So now we got the bottom left, the green quadrant. It's known as the libertarian left Dwellers in this quadrant support the same progressive ends as those in the red. Social progress, workers of the world unite, equality, and, of course, utopia. But they differ in their preferred means. Those on the libertarian left want these policies to come about mostly through peaceful means, or mostly peaceful means. Mostly peaceful being the operating word there. Yeah, (laughs) rather than through force. If you're a hippie or you've ever attended the Burning Man Festival, you're probably in this category. It's the group with the most unrealistic expectations. Members include Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Noam Chomsky, Karl Marx, technically, even though he's the founder of all of the red ones. Yeah. And probably most of your college professors. Now let's move on to the top right, the blue quadrant. The top right quadrant is known as the authoritarian right. Members of this quadrant usually favor traditional values and principles, but are willing to enforce them through the use of government power, as the kings of old did. They often favor racial hegemony, oppose gender equality, are pro-war, often religious, and are, in the words of Patrick Bateman, pro-family and anti-drug. Generally, they wish to preserve the status quo and try to uphold traditional hierarchies within the state and within religion. However, they tend to have a laissez-faire approach to the economy, recognizing that the free market is better at producing wealth than socialism, which Karl Marx even admits in the Communist Manifesto. He's like, yeah, the capitalists are evil, but they've made all this wealth and they're hoarding it. Hmm, I wonder how they made all that wealth. <laughs> uh, and in the blue quadrant, uh, they tend to side with big businesses over workers and limit welfare spending. They are the direct opposite of the green quadrant. Many world monarchies can be found here. Individual members include Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, Hitler, and Pinochet. 
In fact, almost every American politician falls in this quadrant, technically. Then there is, uh, finally, the bottom right, the purple quadrant. This controversial quadrant is known as the libertarian right. Members of this quadrant range from the wise founding fathers all the way down to your friendly neighborhood fedora-wearing ANCAP buddy from high school. Not all ANCAPs wear fedoras. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. We've all been through that phase. Yeah, very, very common to have an ANCAP phase. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Members of this quadrant uh, believe in limited or non-existent government and believe that individual interactions should be as voluntary as possible. They often support drug legalization, oppose war, they want to demilitarize the police. They support spending cuts and oppose high taxes and regulation. This quadrant supports the greatest amount of freedom in most or all aspects of life and is the direct opposite of the red quadrant. Individual members include George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ron Paul, uh, debatable on that one, Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand, and Murray Rothbard. Okay, uh, a quick side note. The closer to the bottom of the scale you get, the shorter the lifespan of the society that tries to adopt it. This is why peace and love utopias in Ancapistan have never existed and likely never will for likely. long. They are based on voluntary, voluntarism and are too often crushed by the involuntarism of the monarchy or the dictatorship, which can be the longest lasting forms of government. However, if you get too high on the scale, your longevity is also in jeopardy. People only accept so much oppression in their personal lives. You can only justify it so much. Yeah, which is why the Soviet Union collapsed. So there, there is evidence of, of that, you know. And in North Korea, some might say, is, you know, it can't, it can't last forever. So it, it will eventually go the way of the dinosaurs. Now, will it, will it be as good as South Korea? Uh, maybe not. But it, it will, it, its iron-fisted regime will eventually ease up. Okay, now let's let's get more into depth about what each of the t axis titles mean. So you got to totalitarianism. We touched on it, but it can be summed up in a simple phrase. Nobody asks for it, but it always happens anyway. The website Philosophy Basics gives a pretty succinct definition. Totalitarianism refers to an authoritarian political system or state that regulates and controls nearly every aspect of the public and private sectors. Totalitarian regimes establish complete political, social, and cultural control over their subjects and are usually headed by a charismatic leader. In general, totalitarianism involves a single mass party, typically led by a dictator, in an attempt to mobilize the entire population in support of the official state ideology and an intolerance of activities which are not directly towards the goals of the state, usually entailing repression and state control of business, labor unions, churches, and political parties. However, for the purposes of the political compass test that we're talking about, authoritarianism only refers to non-economic issues. Mm -hmm. So this form of government does not come into existence overnight, but is the final step in a long series of events. If a given population surrenders basic freedoms little by little, over the course of decades or generations, political division gives way to a single-party system. A powerful leader rises to prominence, an advanced propaganda system is developed, Free speech protection is abandoned. Weapons, personal weapons, are surrendered or confiscated. Utopian prom promises are made. And free nations and their decadence are made into scapegoats. Only then can totalitarianism become real. But who would want any of this? Nobody reads 1984 and says, <laughs> man, you I wish we could be there. there. Nobody reads 1984. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody reads it and says, oh, wow, I want to be there. Yeah. 
yet yet it has come true in a certain degree to Russia, China, Germany, and now North Korea. But plainly, totalitarianism is the unintended consequence of the philosophies that precede it. Now, we got libertarianism, which is the bottom two quadrants. Um, This is the opposite of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. The term libertarian means a different thing internationally than it does in America. So that's what we'll talk about here. Mm -hmm. Abroad, libertarianism is a political philosophy that is completely removed from economics. Thus, leftist libertarians are a thing in foreign discourse. Oh, that's I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's interesting that they make that distinction. Yeah, they do. Here, however, libertarian stands libertarianism stands for moving as far away from government control as possible, even up to and including anarchy, but more on that later. Mhm. So, the left. So, we talked about the up and down. We got way over here at the top, authoritarian, totalitarian, complete control. Bottom, libertarian, as little control as possible. Now let's go to the other axis of the quadrant, which is left and right. So top left and bottom left quadrants is kind of what we're talking about in here. The economic left sees the forest instead of the trees. They oppose free market economics and crony capitalism. They argue that the free market tends to make the rich richer and the poor poorer, where corporations become monopolies. These mega corporations choke out smaller businesses and oppress their employees and the poor in general. These people advocate for workers' rights, including the right to unionize, strike, have safe working conditions, have a livable wage, etc. However, most of them go farther by advocating for aggressive welfare programs funded by progressive taxation, like the progressive income tax, with extensive regulation of industry to protect the environment, minorities, wages, prices, etc. The most extreme leftists want the state to take over industries entirely and confiscate the property of the wealthy. And we've see, we kind of touched on that in previous episodes, talking about the wealth tax mm-hmm. and talking about the other, you know, in our whole tax episode, talking about progressive income taxes. And then there's the right. So the right side, the top right and the bottom right quadrants. The economic right, on the other hand, uh, wants the government to take a hands-off approach to the economy. Some general proposals of this group are lower taxes, less welfare, less regulation, and a smaller government in general. It must be noted that the political compass does not really address military issues. That's a flaw, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the flaws in the system later on, but I think that would be an important addition to some of the questions there, for sure. Yep. But let's get back to the linear spectrum for a moment. The linear spectrum is what most average people are familiar with and most mainstream political discussion uses to help you understand. They use this concept as a reference, but the terms can sometimes get dicey. When you hear someone talk about the left or the right. They are sometimes referring to how much government intervention a person or group wants. Left is more government, right is less. But other times they are talking about the factions, you know, far left being anarchists or Antifa, and far right being neo-Nazis or religious extremists. And we'll get into all of those a little bit later. While being far simpler uh, than the four quadrants, the linear political spectrum is still extremely useful for understanding differences between political ideas, I think, anyway. However, it's important to understand that the term left and right are relative. For example, a modern-day conservative is technically farther left than, say, a libertarian because conservatives tend to favor some government programs and policies that libertarians would oppose or call tyrannical. Uh, Similarly, a moderate is technically closer to the right than a communist. They value a little bit more freedom, whereas a communist would not value as much. 
Right. Uh, a major flaw of the linear spectrum is that people usually don't fall into totally anti-government or pro-government ideologies. Many people favor more government in the economy and less government in social issues, or vice versa, or some other combination. Mm -hmm. Another important note, many definitions change from generation to generation. Two great examples are the terms Republican and Democrat. Looking back through history, these parties have changed their platforms in countless ways, but have always seemed to trend towards increased government involvement as the decades have passed. This is most likely due to the theory of anacyclosis we discussed in episode one. Power consolidates and centralizes over time in all human systems, and as it does, political ideologies change and adapt. Something to think about. Now let's get to the meat and potatoes, the political factions. So let's analyze these. There are a ton of factions that occupy different parts of the spectrum. They're all over the map when you look at the four quadrants. So let's go over some of them, and we've organized them for you by quadrant. Yeah, we're not going to be going into super specific like American terms, like the difference between Trump and Romney or anything like yeah. that. It's overall philosophies that apply throughout the world. Yes, yes. So we'll start in the top left, the red quadrant, with communism, everybody's favorite. Sadly, we've reached the point in American politics where actual communism is uh, actually in vogue in some quarters. This philosophy used to terrify Americans 70 years ago due to its association with the Soviet Union, our arch enemy, an evil empire, according to Reagan, right? That's right. who said that. Communism is a theory or system of social organization based on the holding of all property in common, actual ownership being ascribed to the community as a whole or to the state. In practice, all economic and social activity is controlled by a totalitarian state dominated by a single and self-perpetuating political party. This philosophy of communism was developed by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the Communist Manifesto. A great read, by the way. Great read. Basically, the bourgeoisie, rich people in industry, overthrew the feudal order. They oppressed the proletariat, the poor employees, or the average people, with industrialization and low wages. So all of this was done by the rich against the poor. The proletariat need to throw off their chains and overthrow the bourgeoisie, according to Marx and Engels. This must be done with class consciousness and a dictatorship until conditions were ripe for scaling down the state until everyone lived in utopia. The end. <laughs> they all lived happily ever after. History inevitably leads to this happening, according to them, as industrialization uh, makes nations richer overall, wealth disparity increases, and communism is the next step. It's worth noting that the most, uh, most implementations of this, of communism, arose in non-industrialized nations, contrary to Marx's expectations. Interesting how he was subverted there. Yeah, he thought it would arise in, like, uh, England first. Really? Because they were the most industrialized, but he was completely wrong. Mostly, it arose first in you know, agrarian Russia. Yes. Yeah, I guess that is the most prominent example, and they were super agrarian. Almost all the examples are, I mean, China, yes. like super agrarian. Russia was starting to industrialize. Yeah, and I guess Vietnam was too, although that might have been just because Russia was there to influence them. But they certainly weren't industrialized, but no. they adopted communism. Just an interesting side note. That is very interesting. Then there is Leninism. So Leninism is a Marxist ideology developed by Vladimir Lenin, who was the first dictator of revolutionary Russia. It advocates for the dictatorship of the proletariat, the poor people who are oppressed by the bourgeoisie, 
uh, led by a revolutionary vanguard party, which would be the prelude to full communism. The reason for this dictatorship is to empower the proletariat and effectively destroy the old order of capitalism. This transition is justly done by all means necessary. Uh, Lenin's people, the Bolsheviks, differed from the Mensheviks and anarchists in supporting a dictatorship and one-party state. They all wanted socialism, but the means to get there was disputed. Lenin ruled Russia from 1917 until his natural death in 1924. So naturally, next we're going to talk about Stalinism. Stalinism is another Marxist ideology developed by Lenin's successor, Joseph Stalin, who ruled with an iron fist from 1924 until 1953. In addition to what Leninism pushed for, Stalinism forced rapid industrialization, agricultural collectivization, along with the punishment of successful farmers known as kulaks, systematic gulag imprisonment, a cult of personality, subordination of communist parties abroad to Russia, great purging of dissidents within the party and without, repression of religion, ethnic cleansing, and general health. Probably <laughs> the most violent form of Marxist ideology to date. Yeah. Although Stalin is high on the all-time death count, he is only number two. Speaking of number one, <laughs> Maoism. Yeah. It's a Marxist-Leninist ideology developed by Mao Zedong of China. It differs noticeably from Leninism in seeing the agricultural peasants as the vanguard instead of the urban working class, probably because they didn't have much of an urban working class in China at the time. Yeah, which we just mentioned. They were not as heavily industrialized. Right. So there were, there were cities, but they're a much smaller proportion of the overall population. Mm -hmm. uh, so Mao said that political, party grows, or political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. He was a very nice guy to have around. <laughs> and he lived it by leading people's armies against their oppressors, mostly landlords and city slickers. He really didn't like those city slickers. Really, the urban people he just hated. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of non-Chinese in cities, too. Like, people come in to invest and, you know. Well, that makes sense, yeah, why he that he would target them. It's easy to target foreigners if that's what you're doing in a revolution. Yeah, he also said that he liked the, the country folk best because they... They were uneducated and didn't know anything. And he, he said, quote, you could write beautiful words all over them. <laughs> so they're easy to indoctrinate. Yeah, what yeah. a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, he's sick. <laughs> so Mal thought, he's just, you'll, you'll realize he's a well-rounded genius. Uh, he knew about everything, like the, the Kim dynasty does. Yeah. Uh, Mal thought that collectivizing agriculture would lead to increased yields and stronger bonds between the peasants, making their revolution even better. Oh, yes. Uh, rural people were kept in line through public struggle sessions, where dangerous dissenters were sub subjected to public humiliation and torture. See, he, they would just get people who were suspected of, you know, stealing some of the public food or mm -hmm. whatever, do, saying something bad about the party, just bring them out to these meetings and everyone just shouted. Yeah, them they would shame out. them. And there is actually video of some of this, I believe. Yeah. Um, it's, it's old video, obviously, but... Yeah, you can actually watch people being taken out the street and people yelling at them, you know, kind of just yelling party ideology right in their face. Yep. So Mao, as I said, well-rounded, knew about everything, um, encouraged people to build backyard steel furnaces because, you know, we don't need them factories with cities, you know. <laughs> the, the, the normal person can just uh, make some steel in their backyard. And he even said, well, we need steel, so prioritize this over harvesting crops. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, the greatest famine in Chinese history happened while Mao was doing this. 
Yeah, you don't need yeah. food, but we need some steel. <laughs> Not to mention you can't even make steel like in a little thing in your backyard. No. It, they were it just taking like heat. they're taking scrap metal and trying to turn it into steel. Like do you think these uneducated peasants know how to make steel? Yeah, they don't know anything about metallurgy or <laughs> or anything. And and it requires like I said, so much energy. You know, these guys probably had just wood stoves, maybe yeah, maybe coal. You know, but it was uh, it was wood because they were they completely deforested like so many areas just to be able to like, burn this. Oh my goodness! So many bad effects. And also, I I didn't quite put it here, but there was the they they built a lot of dams mm-hmm. and they're kind of like public works projects. Sure. But Mal didn't even listen to like the engineers. He wanted to design it himself. Oh, classic. That's <laughs> yes. a classic move he there. He just ignored the like the people who had any training. He didn't have any scientific or engineering training and he's designing all these dams and like a hurricane came through a decade or two later and like hundreds of thousands of people died from these dams just, just collapsing up. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So if you want more, like, terrible research, uh, just look up the Great Leap Forward and you'll get even more stuff about, like, the forced labor to build all these, like, irrigation channels that didn't yeah. work. And uh, Yeah, it's – that's the most ironic name. And I can't believe that name is still, like, around. Like, people still call it that, the Great Leap Forward. Is it? Everyone who knows anything knows it's almost no, – it's, it's just ironic. Yeah. Um, so it's a, just the shocking mixture of scientific literacy and authoritarian conceit. I, I really don't know how he could have done any worse. Like, I don't, I think. You'd be I, hard pressed. You'd be hard, I'd be hard pressed to do a worse job as leader of China. <laughs> I, I could try to do a bad job. And, yeah, and I, you don't even speak Chinese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Goodness so gracious. There's also the Hundred Flowers campaign. Now, what was that? Now, I don't know much about oh, that. Oh, it was just, it was so bad. So he said, okay. It wasn't going too well. People are kind of starving. He's like, okay. <laughs> I he shouldn't said, be laughing. But yeah. Like, <laughs> should, yeah. Um, so he's like, okay, citizens, you're now allowed to publicly criticize the Communist Party. Help us get better, you know, so we can, like, better serve you. Oh, like a suggestion box. Yeah, a suggestion box. But, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anonymous. Yeah. So people were like, okay. And then so many people came out and complained. That they were so embarrassed that they just went and arrested everyone who complained. (laughs) It's so bad. That's pretty terrible. Yeah. So let's, you know, I'll I'll end this Maoism discussion with just, you know, look at the one and two child policy as well. Was that uh, instituted under Mao? Yeah. Wow. He's the one who did the one child. And eventually it was moved to two. I think until recently, uh, two child policy was still in place. I think it may still be in place, but less enforced or something. Yeah, I want to say I remember uh, as a kid hearing about one of those policies ending. I guess it was the one or maybe the two. Or maybe I'm totally off base and I just invented that. That's like a Mandela effect fake memory in my head. But I seem to remember learning about that in school like it it came to an end recently. Yeah. So now we can talk about some other East and Southeast Asian forms of communism like Vietnam, North Korea, and Cambodia is what we'll talk about. Vietnam aligned itself with the Soviet Union after the Vietnam War, unlike the Maoists, North uh, Korea, and Cambodia. It's kind of weird they would do that considering they're much further away from Russia than China, but you know, mm-hmm. that's what they did. Mao and Stalin had a falling out in the 1950s. In Cambodia, under the Khmer Ridge regime, you might be surprised to know this, but one out of every four Cambodians was killed in a five-year period. Really? Yep. of the entire country was killed. Pol Pot, which was the, he's the communist dictator, and his followers targeted educated people. No surprise. Yeah. 
He emptied the cities. He was even more anti-city than you know, Mao was. Just wow. completely hated cities. Abolished, uh, he abolished religion and private property and literally banned the existence of 23 minority groups. He said, you're against the law now. <laughs> and those were, that was 15% of the population, those minority, those minority groups. groups. And what did he consider minority groups? So just I mean, even different like, different kinds of Asians. Like if you're from yeah. Vietnam, even you even though they're Maoists, like he he targeted Chinese within Cambodia. Really? Yeah, and Vietnamese. Yeah. And uh, there was there was a small Muslim minority. Kind of reminds you of a, of another country that's recently put some in concentration camps. <laughs> yeah, we won't say we won't, we say, won't what. say we won't say who. Probably some white country. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that was I think percentage wise. Cambodia takes the t- takes the cake. Yeah, that's oh my goodness, incredible. Uh, and you know, it really puts it into perspective when people talk about major catastrophes. Like, come on, y- y- let's let's really think about who lost the most here. Twenty five percent of your entire country, your people, gone. Yeah, unimaginable. So we got North Korea too. We we all know about it. It's depending on who you ask. It's either a socialist paradise or a place where hell reigns on earth. So yeah, it's one or the other. We're not sure. They're noted for their concentration camps for dissenters, absolute poverty of about everybody, and the insane power of the Kim dynasty. Yes, but they did uh, land on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he also has the world record for golf. Oh, does he really? Yeah. Well, his dad did. Kim Jong-il had the world record for golf. I think oh, he, he had like, like five hole-in-ones in one court, one round or something. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, he was probably like 100 under par. Incredible. <laughs> So, and then we got Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War hangs over the American consciousness, but what a, what came of Vietnam after America was out of there? It was actually not as bad as the others we mentioned, low bar, but still 5% of the Vietnamese successfully fled the country. They were mostly the South Vietnamese, like, who were, would be targeted. Yes. Once the, because the country reunited after America left. North, North Korea invaded South, and it became just Vietnam again. Wait, North Korea or uh, North sorry, Vietnam sorry. invaded North South Vietnam, Vietnam. In, invaded South Vietnam. No. Yes, it's the same story of collectivized agriculture and starvation. But luckily, they were not able to control the black market, so it helped some a lot of people from starving to death. Yeah, I believe it was Jeff Goldblum who said the market uh, uh, finds a way. So it found mm-hmm. a way. Thank you. Now let's move down to the bottom left, and we'll start with. Socialism. So we're still in the red here, but uh, we're we're kind of getting down lower. So the minor details of socialism and socialist policies vary from region to region, but they are all based on the idea of social ownership, where the means of production are owned collectively and allocated based on need, based on government directive, or some kind of voting process. Socialist policies are often characterized by central planning, where a governing body makes economic decisions for people, the scaling back of property rights, a mission of equality or equity, and the intended goal of transitioning from a capitalist system, which socialists would argue creates massive wealth disparities, and then transitioning into a a more collectively owned, collectively governed type of society. So then there's liberalism and progressivism. Modern American liberalism is more of a middle ground these days. Liberals, sometimes called classical liberals, as we mentioned earlier, generally believe in the preservation of the social safety net, like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, welfare, other things like that. But they support a mixed economy, and they sprinkle in some free market influences and some social programs, so kind of a mixed bag. They believe in the importance of civil liberties and push for racial, economic, and gender equality. 
Progressives, on the other hand, were born out of the industrialization of the 19th and early 20th centuries when social reform efforts, supported by the middle class mostly, gained some real steam. The driving force behind these reform efforts were the enormous examples of growth of big businesses, uh, which progressives wanted to rein in and really kind of control. Environmental pollution also uh, influenced them and corruption in the political system at large. They wanted to reform all of these and really fix these problems. These days, a progressive is really anyone who wishes to change the status quo. In the leftist direction, at least. Yes, and they usually want to change it that direction. You're right. Modern progressives are at the forefront of LGBTQ rights movements. They support environmentalism. They promote strong social programs. And they wish to redistribute wealth, especially from big businesses. And they often wish to modernize or reform Christianity and stand against traditionalism. All right, so now the the anarch is left. Those black-clad paramilitary-looking men and women in Portland and Seattle? What about the people burning trash cans on the campus of UC Berkeley? Many of them are part of the anarchist left. Generally, the anarchist left is anti-capitalist and wishes to abolish, abolish most, if not all, forms of hierarchy, including the government itself, which they see as oppressive to the people. Fun fact, anarchists were heavily involved in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the Republicans. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned in the night, as I briefly mentioned in the 1984 episode, yes, um, you know, the Republican side had, you know, the the communists, socialists, anarchists, all these different groups, and but they were kind of fighting for, with each other too for power over, you know, what would happen if they won. Oh yeah, so they they teamed up because it was convenient to fight the other side, but yeah. then there was infighting. That's usually how it goes, right? So their arguments and philosophy stems from the skepticism of authority, which developed as ancient societies grew more complex. Many anarchists employ the use of force to dismantle the state, acting as vigilantes, though their success rate is demonstrably low. Yeah, they don't really have a huge effect. And I meant to mention this uh, in the notes, but um, another example would be Occupy Wall Street. I think that's a great example of the anarchist left. So then there's green politics. We will discuss the Green Party of the U.S. later on in the episode. But in general, Greens throughout the world want a healthier natural world with socialism and other regulations targeting industry, and they usually support progressive positions on social issues. Green politics must be distinguished from, from environmentalism, which encompasses many political affiliations and does not always involve socialism or progressivism. And let me say, uh, I remember a funny little joke that libertarians like to tell about okay. environmentalists and green people. They call them watermelons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> green on the outside, red on the inside. <laughs> yes. And that's what they that's what they are. It's kind of like a Trojan horse type deal. And um, who, I, a question that came to my mind just now is like, who, who is an example, prominent example of someone who promotes green politics? I was thinking Bill Nye. Would you say that he's a good example? Uh, he's not that prominent, but uh, well, it may be more prominent than you think. Maybe. I'm trying to think of, oh, what's that? Ralph Nader would be a really good example okay. of someone that's in this quadrant. Yeah. He's pretty, very environmentalist. I think at one point I mentioned Al Gore later on. Yeah, he's a little bit more mainstream. Yeah. But yeah, he's definitely a promoter of green politics. Well, it looks like we are almost out of time for part one. There is uh, so much information to cover on this topic that we've decided to break the episode into two parts. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion so far. Join us again next week for part two, and as always, for even more ancient wisdom.